Hello and welcome to the Ganatantra podcast. I am Sariyo Natarajan and I am Alok Prasanna Kumar. And in this week's episode we will be discussing the coronavirus lockdown. Usually Alok and I make it a point to discuss and have record every episode where we are together, uh, but thanks to the social distancing norms that are in place and the lockdown that's in place uh, we're actually sitting in our own homes and recording uh, it's an incredible privilege to be at home given some of what has unraveled as a result of the lockdown which are things that we hope to talk about we hope to look at the lockdown its implications in the context of federalism which relates to some of our earlier episodes this season we also look at the lockdown and its consequences with respect to institutions uh, and a few other topics such as data governance So before we begin just again uh, to clarify we are not medical experts we can't tell you how to keep yourself safe from covid-19 we can't tell you what to do if you feel the symptoms but uh, we were discussing this uh, earlier this week and we felt that it's not as if uh, the virus has affected everyone equally it has affected different people differently and the government response it sort of tells you something about the nature of politics and the nature of policy that is not just about looking at the data and acting on the basis of that data uh, there are necessary there are political calls being taken and uh, as much as we may say this is purely for to save people's lives um, whose lives are to be saved and at what cost are political calls being taken by governments not just in india but around the world and what we hope to leave you with at the end of this about half an hour of you know uh, episode that we have planned we want you to be able to think about on what basis are government taking these calls that you know you don't just assess it on the basis of this went right or this went wrong uh, but how are governments taking these calls and how do we judge whether they made the right call or wrong absolutely and i think that placing it in context in terms of the politics uh, that are in play in the country today uh, is very critical not just because it gives you a lens into the ways in which the state governments respond to sort of various levels of the uh, federal structure respond to this uh, but it also gives you a sense of how things may be uh, in the future because it looks like uh, at least from what we understand it again to alok's point we're not really experts uh, but it looks like uh, this might be uh, fairly long drawn it might um, it, there's there's a lot of compelling evidence suggesting uh, that this is not over on april 15th uh, and to to think about the ways in which this could impact even future actions uh, from various aspects of the government uh, various governments at the state level or at the city level uh, in in the in india and when we see state and city level we actually if you go back a week how oh, a week actually seems like a month ago <laughs> yeah. you know? uh, but if you actually go back a couple of weeks um, we see that a lot of state governments have started imposing initial versions of the lockdown by themselves Uh, Karnataka at least uh, Maharashtra Delhi uh, some and Kerala of course had started taking measures at least to say okay you know we're shutting down schools and education institutions we're shutting down stores restaurants and so on uh, much before the union government had stepped in and done anything and the union government had of course sort of taken some measures leading to the airports and so on but again the pattern that we're seeing around the world is that regional and municipal governments right at the state level at the city level in India have been taking calls to do uh as in okay put in lockdowns or take measures to fight covid-19 much before this current nationwide lockdown has been imposed and i think one great example actually com- comes from the district of kalburgi in the north of karnataka which uh, was like a classic example of how both two things how both the federal structure messed up the whole exercise and also how it provided an answer to the situation 
uh, we saw the situation where um, elderly gentleman from came in from Saudi Arabia, land in Hyderabad because Kalburg is actually much closer to Hyderabad than it is to Bangalore, and went across state borders to the to his home. There was no way for the Karnataka state government to have any eyes on him as to this person has come in from Saudi Arabia to Karnataka, and Telangana government would have lost sight of him once he crossed the border. His treatment was completely botched up because he was treated at private hospitals and government hospitals, discharged from one, sent to the other, and you know he sort of traveled back and forth between Hyderabad and Kalburgi. And what what eventually happened was that he came into contact with a lot of people in his because he was a well-known preacher. Uh, he came into contact with a lot of uh, people in his district and in the city of Kalburgi, which uh, sort of and when he was diagnosed as being positive as it, uh, having the COVID virus when he passed away. It caused a bit of a panic in the district, and the district was basically locked down. Right before the, even the national lockdown was imposed, the complete district was locked down. And so far, we have only seen about three or four cases from that state. They were able to trace the contacts, monitor the people. It was quite a large number, but they were at least able to effectively prevent it from spreading it to surrounding districts. We know the success or failure of these measures sometime in a couple of weeks, but something similar also happened in the district of Bilwara in Rajasthan. Uh, where again they found that doctors had been diagnosed with it, and because doctors had seen so many patients, they had to go literally house to house to find out is there anyone with symptoms, have they travelled anywhere, you know what, uh, uh, is there some someone we should put under quarantine or keep under observation? But these are measures taken by the district administrations themselves. These are measures taken by the state governments themselves to uh, to take uh, charge of the situation and see okay can we limit the impact of uh, what is going on? But they can't do this on their own. And I think so this is the United States. The United States is realizing the effect of this because even as much as the federal government, as we speak, has not imposed any such thing like a national lockdown as India has, various uh, state governments out there, uh, the governors especially, are imposing lockdowns in their particular state, some version of the lockdowns, uh, to ensure that people that this disease doesn't spread and they're able to manage the load. So we are sort of seeing how a federal structure can be put under strain and how it responds to uh, situations like this. Absolutely, and I think the other point to note here is that cities have been the first sites of spread of these kinds of infections. Um, it was observed in the case of SARS as well. It's true of COVID too, uh, mainly because it's brought in by international travelers, uh, most likely landing in cities and residing in them. Uh, and this highlights another sort of important tier of government which we've discussed in previous episodes, uh, but is worthwhile to talk about, which is the municipal government, which at the city level is responsible for a range of uh, services to citizens and a range of sort of governance aspects, you know, such as sanitation, such as aspects of public health, uh, even some aspects of transportation are locally managed. And to think about that at level of governance and in its often its inability to enforce some of the things by, that might be most relevant at the city level is also worth considering. Um, so if, if you look at the first sort of sites of cities, uh, they're places from or in places to which international travelers have arrived. Um, so it's it's really that level of the municipal level of governance, which is also critical in terms of thinking about uh, the way in which, uh, go, you know, levels of government need to sort of kick in uh, to address the questions around COVID. Yeah, and, and here I will point out to two of our recent episodes. And I, and I think one which sort of uh, listeners are advised to see to, to uh, hear once again and rethink some of the things that you heard in light of what is happening around you. Uh, one is Pranay Kotastani's fantastic uh, 
discussion yep. with us on uh, municipal government and not just municipal government but devolution of funds and fiscal federalism uh, about as we called it the two and a half lakh governments in india uh, which, which which sort of tells you about the capacity and the lack of ability at a lot of uh, this state and other of uh, city and uh, rural uh, governments uh, but also uh, chinmay kumbhe's uh, excellent uh, episode on uh, migration i think one of the things that we are sort of seeing right now and it's happened in the last 3 4 days since the lockdown was imposed was that suddenly cities are waking up and cities and states also are waking up to realizing oh my god this is how many interstate migrant laborers uh, labor is uh, present in our city and in as much as uh, say states from kerala to delhi are trying to convince them to stay you know uh, in place not to try and move out and go back home it's uh, hard to convince people especially when they determined to move and in such large numbers you know talking about four or five people who can help and or even just in the order of hundreds you know acts of people across yes, the country and, yes and one of the sources of this problem has been uh, the lack of coordination particularly in terms of the release of the census data on migration right uh, i joke about yes. this uh, i would have written a different phd if the census 2011 census data had been available in the last yeah. decade uh, the migration data the d tables were not made available for a very long time and i think they were only recently released well yeah. after i had submitted my phd um, and so to think about how state governments would enact these decisions without the adequate information I mean, even 2011 data is probably outdated, but it's definitely more indicative than 2001 data. Uh, so, so it it's critical that the state is informed in making these decisions. And you know that brings us to the point around the question of where where are people coming from, where are people going. Uh, Chinmay does some amazing work in his book as well, India Moving, which he talks about in the episode that Alok mentioned, um, where you know he highlights how much interstate, intrastate movement there is of people, and to think that uh, uh, it it is possible to impose or sort of bring in place. A, a lockdown or a shelter in place i think that's the term that's used and look yeah. how much war terminology we have yes. uh, at our disposal but you know a shelter in place is is really hard because what does place even mean in this context uh, is something to think about yeah, and a lot of uh, interstate migrants and again keep in mind we're talking about people who are probably doing this on a, a semi permanent basis of that course. every year they will come for a few months do the work in the cities and go back to their villages in time for harvest or you know in time for uh, other village uh, purposes so it's 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 not as if it's a one and done situation that they come for a few months and one and they go back forever they keep doing yeah. this again and again which is why i use the term semi permanent uh, but they have they have some settings where they know this is where i will go to find work this is where i know i will stay this is where i can make my arrangements uh, but when things go really bad at this present moment when you're not sure you're going to get any work you're not sure yeah. you're going to make rent in that place you want to go back uh, the government can say okay you know what you don't have to worry about rent you don't have to worry about food but for a lot of people they're like thank you but i can't stay cramped in this place with seven other men usually yes. men uh, for the next uh, however long you want to tell me to just on the basis that i might get a couple of meals a day i need to be go back and i need to go back home because it's a very situation for me so yeah. in a sense what this crisis has also unveiled you know apart from all the discussions on public health and federalism it has also told us something very fundamental about the nature of migration in india and the concerns of migrant labor and how they are invisible to the government i mean it's not as if uh, the government does not want to acknowledge their existence uh, although there are people who would say that they'd government refuse to acknowledge their existence 
but also that the government just cannot see that it doesn't have mechanisms to address their needs to understand why they're coming how to make their lives better and so on uh, and now when you've taken a decision with such wide ranging implications across the country like possibly with demonetization but it accept to be 10 times more impactful um, yeah. you find that because you don't see the set of people um the decision has gone awry in so many different ways and in ways you can't imagine and we've seen the images from the anand vihar isbt and today people were sharing images from kerala where thousands of uh, migrant labor have turned up in the streets saying you know we just want to be allowed to go home you're great you're doing whatever you're great but you know we just too worried to want to stay here anymore there's no for us no work for us we don't want to escape we just want to go back home yes i think that there's uh, you know, to sort of talk back about the wide literature there is about circular migration uh there's uh shivramakrishnan i want to say I, i i will we will link the paper in the show notes there are papers that talk about circular circulatory migration uh there's ian bremen's fantastic work on migration uh, so there's a lot of literature that documents the plight of migrants so the invisibilization of migration in that sense in the current way in which the lockdown has been um, has been brought into place uh, is is indeed both a problem of data as well as in some ways the i i i you know i would hesitate to sort of certify that as the reason but perhaps a lack of political will uh, to see migrants migration and migrants as uh, somebody who's uh, or a set of people whose needs have to be specifically addressed um circulatory migration is for instance i i don't know if uh, in, in the summer it's actually just the time now uh, this fruit called the nunga which uh, which you get all over the streets of bangalore is all circular migrants who come from across the border in tamil nadu going back at the end of the season uh, either for farm work or for um, you know for for a range of other types of employment right. that they right. may have access to in their home state so to think about the the, the even the point of time at which that this has been imposed is really uh, is really something that uh, that would have required a lot more deliberate thought Yeah. and a lot more data which yeah. i think is is another point to speak of because uh, and this has been mentioned several times if the same set of inputs were available with much more data would we have arrived at the same conclusion around the lockdown so there's there's that sort of thinking as well that needs to be addressed because for a for an action that has as much impact as this is uh, this is having it is critical to think about the ways in which uh, alternative solutions could also have been imagined though one must not go down the path of counterfactuals uh, but uh, you know at this present moment it's worth being entirely sure that this is the right way to uh, to address the situation and and, and in some senses sasario i have a lot of sympathy nobody can accuse me of this sometimes some people do i do have sympathy for uh, state and central governments which have to take decisions in this regard uh for one they they don't have data from their own country they right, right? we're looking at curves from italy from spain from the us from china from south korea from some japan countries which are in no way like in, in, in any particular way that you want to slice and dice it and going what do we do if this happens here and the difficult thing for them is will this happen here and how do we know what happens here and because the situation is changing so fast uh, that you know in a span of uh, one month we've gone from say 10 uh, cases of covid-19 in india to 1000 cases approximately and uh, in as much as that may seem like a terrifying growth it's actually not as bad as most other countries 
now is that reason to be a, be a little bit complacent about this or is that reason to now say you know what we need to ensure that this stays this way so let's go the uh, other extreme it's a difficult call and i think making this decision is not something that you know uh, has like a perfect outcome that uh, we somehow manage to ensure every uh, that there's no large scale spread and at the same time the economy is not affected so this is this is and, and the point of course being that uh, the data is not something that can definitively guide you to say this is exactly what you must do uh, governments have to take a call on the basis and i guess at some point which data looks like now if if people are if people in government are sufficiently capable and uh, understand how to read and interpret the data they will probably get more things right than wrong but at the end of the day they still have to apply the data to reality they just can't see it out of context and what we have yeah. just been discussing to understand that when 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 you sort of think about it, and to put it in the crudest and most most stark terms the choice i think before an indian policy maker any at state or central level essentially comes down to this how do i ensure the deaths at from covid 19 are kept to a minimum without causing deaths by starvation i mean that that's the crudest way that i can put it and i think that is really the tough a uh, question facing um, indian policy makers and you know it, it, data can help them make a better call but it can't tell you what call of course i think that 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 shouldn't even be the goal uh, especially when you need a rapid response i don't think you can have a a perfect answer and there is no counterfactual in this case at all uh, which is that there is no alternative scenario with which you can compare uh, in fact the comparables like japan is sometimes thrown up as a comparison uh, india did seem to adopt some of the earlier strategies of limiting testing which japan also did but how can you compare a country with such a small population to uh, to ours plus a range of other social factors so absolutely I, i i think the idea is to be able to say in what way is the availability of data also political uh, and there's a problem because there's one which is that there is data which relates to the census which might have informed the whole trajectory uh, in a in a it, this is not to say that it wasn't considered uh, but there's also data that resides at the state level and data that resides at the municipal level uh, which might also inform and so given that there is a set of three tiers of government or two and a half as you sometimes say are look uh, sets yes. uh, tiers <laughs> of government um, it is it's critical to think about what intelligence resides where and in what way can it all be brought together marshaled together to to inform the right kind of decision making um so there you know there's that aspect of data data which can inform the decision but there's also another thing that one needs to speak about in the context of data and that relates to that relates to data about individuals um in what we are seeing now in the context of the lockdown uh, particularly with respect to strategies like tracing and quarantining uh, is a large amount of data being extracted in the name of public safety and there is uh, a set of concerns that arise in that context and that relates to whether this can ever be rolled back um and what that data has actually meant in the way that the state has um has balanced the interests of public health versus the pri- privacy of citizens so there's that aspect and what this is also leading to is because the boundaries between the state and citizens um is porous in the era of what whatsapp there are also instances of of this kind of information being used against citizens to threaten harass um and even enable vigilante actions we saw uh 
you know, very recently, I think this was about two days ago, uh, information about a couple that was COVID positive uh, in a part of Bangalore uh, with videos and photos of them being circulated on a range of WhatsApp group in the, WhatsApp groups in the area, uh, which relates to another set of problems that are, arise with respect to data. This has nothing to do with the state's informed decision making, but has to do very much with how the state reacts uh, once there are a set of instances or diagnosed cases. Uh, so that's also a point to consider. It it speaks to some of the episodes we've done over the past two uh, years, uh, but I think it's also an independent concern that has sort of an exceptional uh, appearance or a manifestation in this particular case. Yeah, and uh, the, there has been, uh, I think, uh, two, especially since we're in Bangalore, I think two big uh, decisions or moves by the government, which have come under some fairly serious scrutiny. Um, one is, of course, the decision to release the names of uh, people who have been placed under quarantine. Remember, these are not people who have been who have tested positive. These are people yeah. who have been required to be quarantined because they travel from a country outside India, which had uh, COVID-19, which had probably instances of COVID-19 and so on. Um, and, look, they've uh, made an app also on top of it. They've made an app on top of it, exactly. Yeah. Uh, right? <laughs> they've made an app where you can actually check out. And I, and I, and I happen to use this app. The app doesn't give names, to be fair. The app doesn't give names. The app just simply says you put in your uh, PIN code and you find out how many people in your area are supposed to be self-quarantined. Now, this is a, I mean, without context, this can be a very scary app for people to use because if I find out, like say, in my area, widely covered, there are in my uh, pin code that there are about 463 people who are supposed to be quarantined, you will panic, right? You, you, you're not told who are these, uh, of course, you don't need to know who they are, but you're not told what, what is make them quarantined. Is it because they've traveled outside, they've come in contact with someone, or are they related to someone? You don't know anything of that. You just know 463 people are quarantined and can be a very terrifying measure. So even without the names and stuff, which is itself, you know, has all these possible uh, dangers of vigilantism and so on, uh, there is also a risk that um, this, this this could, in fact, cause uh, spread, spread more panic. But I think the second move, which has also come in for some level of criticism, let's say at the moment, is the government, the, the uh, state government here uh, decided to move from issuing physical passes to individuals who had to turn up, I mean, the absurdity of this, where, in, where you know, you're trying to enforce lockdown to ensure that there is uh, uh, distancing. But then you ask everyone to queue up before the local DSP office to get your uh, movement passes. Uh, you know, kind of defeating the purpose of it. So they said, okay, fine, e-passage. But promptly they went and uh, signed an MOU of some sort with uh, MyGame, uh, yes. which, is, which is a startup which specializes in limiting entry and access to apartment complexes. And there's a different issue to be discussed. But suddenly you have a private player being involved in this um, who has access to data. You're not sure what is the terms on which they have access to data. Have they worked out the processes? Have they ensured that the data will be protected? How will you make sure it's not being used for profit later? Yes. There's there so many questions. And I mean, I, I there's no. Yeah, there's no tendering. There's no, it seems to be. So I've looked at what the MyGate website says on this. If we can have a little segue into talking about this particular application. Other, other city governments and state governments have... Uh, police departments have moved towards an online curfew pass system just for the very reasons that you mentioned. It would be the death of irony if you said curfew passes in an era of social distancing in person. Um, so the objection is not so much to the digitization of this, though there are some questions around that as well, uh, but around the ways in which data are being shared. And there's not really much of 
much clarity in terms of uh, who owns the data, whether there is whether it can be further monetized. Uh, it seems to be goodwill. So what happens if it is indeed monetized in the wrong way? Um, so there is there are a set of concerns around uh, privacy and um, and data sharing. There's no purpose limitation that is. Uh, Placed, which can be enforced, uh, which raises which raises questions about um, what the CVB said. There was no tendering process, right? Mygate, I think, volunteered to do this, uh, and they've uh, therefore and they therefore are doing it. And, and, and to be fair, let's acknowledge this one thing: there is a capacity issue in our government, right? You think that surely, um, with the government which which has which has been like this, uh, which has overseen the start of growth. They might have developed some internal capacity to do this, but they haven't. And perhaps they're not able to deploy that capacity fast enough. But for whatever reason it is, when you have the private sector step in to fill a certain gap in government capacity, there's a need to think it through. Not to say that it's necessarily bad, but it's not necessarily so. But when it comes to, especially in emergency situations such as this, and when you're talking about handling people's data, um, there is a need to be extra careful. And, and the, rightly, people are raising questions. And one hopes as the government, you know, sort of responds to various situations as they arise, when they rope in private players and private parties, that they think some of these questions through and come up with ways to uh, address some of the issues that people have over the handling of data. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think there's there's very much the danger that we move into realms of um, of disaster capitalism in in the inclusion of the private sector, and I hesitate to use the word because it uh, it carries a lot of connotations with it. But uh, it it must not be such that somebody is profiting from the from the situation in a way that is extractive of people's data or extractive of sort of people's resources. Uh, and this is a danger that is to be guarded for uh, as much as. Question, actual questions, instrumental questions of data sharing, uh, privacy and purpose limitations that should be anyway a part of how uh, data sharing is done in any context. Uh, so that's absolutely uh, critical in terms of thinking about the um, about the current crisis. And finally, you know, one point before we sort of uh, end this episode, uh, we, you have this somewhat absurd uh, set of hashtags going around on Twitter demanding that the government impose an emergency under the constitution or take over some state's finances using the powers under Article 316. Uh, and leaving that aside, we are in, in fact in an emergency situation. So just, just, just and because I used the word, I thought we should just discuss this a little bit. Um, the concept of emergency powers is, is, is not like exhausted in the constitution. Uh, there are three kinds of emergencies in the constitution. You have Article 56 provides for taking over of a state's, uh, I mean, the president's rule in a state uh, when the state government is impossible through, uh, you know, uh, because of uh, because the constitution uh, government is impossible for various reasons. Uh, you have the emergency which can be imposed now post the emergency in 75 for external security threats or internal rebellion. And you have provisions for like a financial emergency where, uh, you know, a state's finances can be sort of managed by the center where it does not done well. But that, that is not the only place in our laws and in our constitutional system that you will find governments being given emergency powers. Uh, if you look at it that way, the National Disaster Management Act, in fact, gives the union government emergency powers. Now, it was not intended to be applied uniformly across the country as it has been for the purposes of COVID-19. 
but it effectively gives the government power to you know run a particular district or a set of districts or the state and i'm simplifying it a lot but the concept of emergency powers you have to understand uh, is not just something that say about uh, is is to be considered the same as imposing an emergency under the constitution emergency powers are where the regular system of uh, you know rules and laws and procedures and checks and balances are suspended temporarily just so that you can preserve these systems of rules and checks and balances and it actually goes back to the roman republic when the position of a dictator was known and uh, rome the roman senate would hand over powers to this dictator in times of war famine disease to ensure that they overcame this uh, situation and powers are handed back at the end of this uh, tenure until you know julius caesar came over and did uh, hand back and became an emperor but the concept of emergency powers exists in any constitutional system and you know you have controversial and famous uh, constitutional theorist carl schmidt talking about it and in fact india's provisions uh, relating to emergency in the constitution are actually heavily drawn from the german weimar republic constitution uh, you find a lot of similarities there and a lot of carl schmidt's writing was based on the weimar republic constitution so when we talk about laws and rules we, uh, and you know all these other things we run into this tricky situation that any set of rules laws or any legal system cannot survive for too long if it has no means to defend itself as a system that it requires a suspension of that system to defend that system and again it is necessarily supposed to be temporary and for a purpose and a lot of you know dictators become tyrants when they take away the temporary part of it and when they uh, forget about the purpose part of it but we have to understand that uh, this is in a system where we are we are currently in a situation where it is an emergency where the government is sort of exercising emergency powers but we don't know exactly when this will end uh, we don't know exactly when the government will allow state governments to function properly or will will stop sending out these directives and these uh, advisories and so on and so forth and when state governments will be taking independent decisions on their own to manage their affairs and this sort of creates a problem for lawyers and constitutional lawyers how do we make sense of this particular situation here yeah absolutely uh well i think this is all we have time for today uh we we do think that this is a situation that is unfolding pretty rapidly and we might therefore come back to it to raise some of the additional questions that relate to this uh, but things to think about uh, as uh, you know we process the lockdown and we process all that's happening in the country uh, is to think about the ways in which different levels of government interact with each other what this means for our institutions the availability of data for decision making and the politics that surround it as well as questions of uh, you know the surveillance state more broadly speaking and it's it's effects that uh, it could have on individuals privacy um, and uh, and self governance in that sense and as alok mentioned more broadly what the idea of emergency itself means uh, so we we'll leave it at that for now uh, and hope to come back uh, but do tune in next wednesday for our next episode uh, thank you everyone for tuning into this episode and we hope you all stay safe and you stay uh, stay indoors and uh, we hope to catch you soon for another episode by then uh thank you all for tuning in bye bye bye